This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, how can I believe that there is more than this? My guest today is James Garth. James is an aeronautical engineer with over 15 years experience. He's also a fellow of ISCAST, an organisation for Christians in Science, and he joins me now. Please welcome James Garth. G'day, James. Welcome to Bigger Questions. (laughs) So, James, you're an aerospace engineer. What do you love about aerospace engineering? The honest answer, Rob, is that I get paid to play with big boys' toys all day. Really? That's, that, that's the honest answer. Yeah, so I you like big planes? Uh, big planes, small planes as well, manned, unmanned, fighter, civil, the whole gamut. Terrific. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. And today we're talking with James Garth about how we can believe that there is more than this. So James, our smaller questions to you today are, how much do you know quotes about more than this? Now, it sounds a little bit esoteric, but it'll make sense as we do the quiz. Um, are you prepared, do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm worried. Uh, let's see how this goes. Okay, we'll see how we go. There's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. The boy Oliver Twist, in Charles Dickens' classic tale of the same name, once in a moment of greater temerity asks, Please, sir, I want some more. What was he asking for more of? Was it A... More to reality than just the material order? (laughs) Was it B, more water to drink to stave off his thirst? Was it C, more gruel to eat for his supper? Or was it D, more fries with his order? Well, I think they're all reasonable requests in their own way. Uh, I don't think Oliver was concerned about existential angst, so (laughs) I'm going to drop A. Uh, I don't think burgers and fries and the like would be on the menu okay. at, uh, at this uh, institution, so I think D's gone. Yep. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's C, the, uh, the gruel. And the answer is indeed C, that's right. He was probably driven more by hunger than it was for philosophical or existential yearning. Indeed. Yes. Question, <laughs> question two. So who made the following statement that this is all there is? The statement is, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Hmm. Was it A, the Pope? <laughs> B, Bill Gates, who knew a thing or two about computers? Is it C, Douglas Adams, the author to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Or was it D, Stephen Hawking, the great physicist? I do know this one, and it was Stephen Hawking, the great physicist. The answer indeed is indeed Stephen Hawking, the great physicist. Congratulations, James. You got two out of two of our smaller questions. Right, big hand for James. (laughs) James, many in our world believe, like Stephen Hawking, that this is all there is. There is nothing beyond what I can taste, see and touch. And when we die, there's no afterlife, no nothing. Now, there's an element of reasonableness to that, do you think? What you see is what you get? On the surface, yes, but... Immediately you raise the question, well, what can I see? Is that all there is? We know now from science that about 0.03% of the electromagnetic spectrum is in the visible range. So we already know there's a lot of stuff that we actually physically can't see, mm-hmm. but that is real. Yeah. Okay. So the moment you start asking these deeper questions from science, questions of what you can observe and measure become a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. But there, we can measure them though, can't we? In some ways there's a, a sense I can... 
you, you, you can. You can rephrase the question that way. Although um, things like uh, quantum mechanics in the in the 20th century have actually changed the way we view uh, the the limits of, of measurement. You can measure some things about a particle, its position, but not its momentum. You might measure its momentum, but not its position. And you can't measure the, the, these things at the same time. So there's actually limits within the structure of the universe itself to what we can measure. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is quite sobering, actually. Yeah, okay. Well, prominent American atheist Paul Kurtz wrote an article, Why I Am Skeptical About Religious Claims. Now, he was skeptical because he thought something transcendent like God did not explain the world we encounter. Now, skepticism is mm. doubt uh, as to the truth of something. Do you think that skepticism or a form of doubt is reasonable? Well, it depends what the scepticism is. Um, I think at its finest, scepticism is a form of rational inquiry about the world and constructively asking questions and seeking evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a good thing. I think it's actually an intellectually honest thing. So if I want to be intellectually honest about my worldview, I ought to um, ask these sort of questions. Um, But I might just pick up on um, on Paul Kurtz's quote there about... um, a transcendent not being a good explanation for the universe. Now, I would argue that this is a judgment that he's made, a metaphysical judgment that goes beyond physics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I might form a different con- uh, response. I might, uh, if I defined God as Thomas Aquinas did, as a, a prime mover, the first cause, uh, a necessary state of being that undergirds the universe, a source of perfection and embodiment of the good and a formidable intelligence that uh, actualizes the universe and the laws of the universe and instills order and design into it. Well, I kind of think that such a being would be a very good explanation for the universe and what mm-hmm. we see around us. Mm. Is doubt, though, just as a way of living or a way of engaging the world, is that reasonable? Well, I think there can be different types of doubt. I think the doubt that um, many of us are familiar with is a feeling of being uncomfortable with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And as I kind of alluded to before, the more we know about the world and the universe, there's a lot of things that are difficult to know with certainty. So there's, this just seems to be the way life is. And I think if we're intellectually honest, we'll acknowledge that. Um, I think there can be another form of doubt whereby you lose confidence in a person or a cause. And that form of doubt, um, I think it's kind of like doubting the abilities of your football coach. Right. If you do that, and you might develop a more critical or hostile mindset that probably isn't going to turn out well for the coach. Yeah, so when so, you know that a coach is in trouble is when the board gives full confidence. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We, should, we should be wary of anyone who has full confidence in the football because coach. Because you know they're going to get sacked. Yes, right. There's an element of doubt in their ability, I suppose. That's there. right, so, yeah. But I mean, you're an aerospace engineer, so you deal with certainty all the time, don't you? In the design phase, at a design review, you're not going to see a lot of certainty. Um, In the early stages of conceptual design, you're very uncertain about the performance of your vehicle. So what you do is you dig deeper. You do calculations, theoretical calculations. You do tests on the design. Um, You make some conservative assumptions and you gain confidence gradually. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean you're certain about everything. I mean, take fracture mechanics, for example. That's the the statistical discipline of finding out where a a crack's going to occur in your aircraft. Do they do those calculations, do they? So we we make some approximations, statistical approximations, but you don't actually know where one of these is going to occur with certainty. Does that help select my seat next time I'm on a plane to work out where the crack is most likely to be? No, no. If we're doing our job properly, there are design principles you can put in place to minimise stress concentrations. Okay, good. And that's what we do. Thanks. But my point is that you don't actually know in that thing okay. where, where something's going to originate from. Mm, mm. So you, 
there's an element of certainty or what, what degree of certainty I think, do you have? I think we, we come up with uh, confidence in the, in the air vehicle because we have good enough reasons mm. to think that it will work, okay? Mm. Now, we might do our theoretical calculations and they're all well and good, but you don't really know how it's going to perform until you put it in the air and test it. Mm. You know, the great aerospace engineer Werner von Braun said, one good test is worth a thousand expert opinions. <laughs> so then must we then have certainty to believe something? I'm wary of someone who expresses full and total dogmatic certainty. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was um, Martin Luther said, when it comes to knowledge, that you've got two options. You can have knowledge with doubts or you can have no knowledge at all. Mm. The only other option is if you have knowledge with no doubts. And Luther said, only God and madmen have knowledge <laughs> with no doubts. Now, James, doubt, certainly about questions of God, hmm. is something that you've experienced in your life. Now, you say that doubt is connected to knowledge, but maybe can you tell us about your experiences of doubt, particularly when it came to yeah, Christian so, faith? So I've had an experience probably not dissimilar to a lot of people insofar as I was raised in a, in a home where Christian belief, we went to church, and it was never forced upon me in such a way that I felt this is something I have to accept or there'll be big consequences, okay? We had a good youth group, uh, a, a nice community by and large, and it was generally something that I look back with in fond memories. But I think when I sort of um, went into my kind of early 20s, like a lot of people do, I looked at the worldview that I'd been given with and raised with, and I sort of put it under a bit of scrutiny to decide what parts of that worldview I'd take forward into my adult life and what parts I dispense with. Um, I gained a lot of frustration with people in my peer group and church community who'd make claims about God's action in the world that I thought didn't have enough doubt. You know, this, that would say, you know, I, I pray for a job um, when I'm going for a job at Woolworths. Oh, look, I got the job at Woolworths, so God must have given me the job. Or I'm driving through the city and I need a car parking space, that classic example. Oh, look, a car parking space appears. Thanks, God. Mm. Now, now the, the that's, that's not unreasonable, though. Well, the sceptic in me would always say, well, okay, is it God's job to provide car parking spaces or is that the council's job? <laughs> and, 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 and what about the person who missed the car parking spot because you got it? And they might have prayed, did God not answer their prayer? Mm. So and, these are some of the doubts <clears throat> that you had. Yeah, and, and often it was really with people who would talk with a lot of confidence that, oh, God's doing this, he's acting this way, he's doing this in my life. And I, to me, it just seemed to be a little bit surfacey and not deep enough. Mm -hmm. So how did you resolve that? A number of ways. I think the first way was understanding the idea of provisionality of knowledge. So I might believe some things provisionally. I have a little bit of doubt, but I have enough confidence to work with that aspect of knowledge and move forward. Um, some things I might believe stronger than I believe other things. Like um, I might believe with a very high degree of confidence that Jesus was a person with a reputation as a teacher and a healer who said and did certain things and was crucified in the, the early first century under Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. I could say that with a very high degree of confidence and well be well within mainstream historical opinion. Mm -hmm. But I might say something like, well, I don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay, there's a lot of arguments for and against who the author of that book is. So my strength, my, my degree of knowledge um, depends on the question that you're asking. And for me to understand that that's okay, I can do that in my theology and religion and philosophy. I can do that in my science. It's okay to have that provisionality. Mm. Um, so provisionality of belief or yeah. was, was one factor? That was what, one what factor. Else, what else was I, there? Another factor was realising that I was better served 
we've always doing exploring these questions to look at top tier thinkers. What do you okay. mean by top tier thinkers? Are people at the top of their game? Yeah, uh, people who have stood the test of time, like you might say Thomas Aquinas, Blaise Pascal, Alvin Plantinga, C.S. Lewis, these kind of names. I would be better off going and looking at the wisdom of these thinkers than asking someone who was in my peer group in their early 20s about the, you know, complex questions or, or of existence. Going on an internet forum or something. Or going on the internet. A lot of people think they can track down truth by jumping on the internet and looking at a discussion thread where people go at it for 500 comments. Um, there might be better ways to try and <laughs> seek out truth than that. Yeah. And so you engage these thinkers. And so what did you come... What was your conclusion? Well, I actually gained what I thought was a more satisfying faith, uh, a more satisfying understanding of God by just backing things off a bit and not insisting upon that level of strident certainty. I didn't have to whip myself up into a frenzy to believe something. I had just a, a more organic and a, a tepid sort of faith. So what does that mean? Does it mean that you don't really believe? or No, it... no, actually, I actually say that I think there are very good reasons to believe in God. I don't think I can furnish an argument that you couldn't then come back at with another objection. But I think I could make an inference to the best explanation. I could say, based on what I see in the world, it makes sense, or better sense than the alternatives, that there is some intelligence behind it. So yes, I, I do believe, and that belief is strong, but it's within the context of understanding um, my, my, my philosophy of knowledge, mm. if you like. Now, the Atheist Foundation of Australia on their mm. website say that we live in a natural universe with known natural laws. Mm. We can understand why primitive cultures believed that invisible beings controlled what we now call the elements and natural phenomena. With access to factual knowledge, there is now no excuse for believing in gods, fairies or any supernatural concept. So is there really no excuse for believing in God or any supernatural <laughs> concept? How can I believe that I, there is more than this? Yeah, I... That quote's interesting. I find their confidence a bit disturbing. I'm not saying that we don't know that the universe is governed by laws. We do. But I think it's a stretch to say we have a full description. For example, in my field, uh, the field of um, aerodynamics, turbulence is not understood mathematically yet. The thing is that we actually use approximations and, and models that work, that get us close enough, without understanding the nitty-gritty. I mean, Feynman called this one of the greatest unsolved questions in physics. It's now, the problem this, of turbulence. Yeah, and this is one of maybe maybe 80 questions that are fundamentally still not understood in, in physics. Mm. So, so you suggest that the Atheist Foundation perhaps have a little bit more confidence or certainty in their beliefs than they perhaps I, I would argue they actually have a faith in the existence of a describable universe, but that faith is actually well-grounded. We have good reasons to think that, mm -hmm. but they're actually reaching beyond what we've actually discovered at this point in time. Mm. But uh, I find the no-excuse thing a little bit interesting too. Um, I would kind of again push back and say you're proposing what's called a metaphysical naturalism worldview. What do you mean by that? That's a long couple it's, of long it words. Is, it is a mouthful. Um, metaphysical means beyond physics, okay? So if you hold to that view that this is all there is and there's nothing more, you often make a number of assumptions when you do that. You might make an assumption that the laws of the universe have held st steady in their current state from the beginning of time, okay? You might make that assumption even though that's not a scientifically provable assumption. Mm. So embedded in this whole philosophy a lot of things that are very much up for debate so but basically they're asserting that there is nothing more than this 
So how can I believe that there is more than just what we see? Taste on, on, taste? A very, on a very simple level, we know that there are, again, that the concept of a law is not something that's material. You can't reach out and touch it. Um, you might find things in mathematics like uh, imaginary time or, or Hilbert space or you know, fluctuating wave particle mm-hmm. um, properties. All of these things are not really mass energy uh, quantities per se, they're, they're something more sort of abstract or conceptual. Mm-hmm. So that might be a gateway into thinking about things beyond the material. In terms of there being a overriding superintelligence that undergirds things, I think there are good reasons for that. Yeah. Um, we might look at things like the rational tractability of the universe. What, we, is, what does that mean? Sorry. It means the universe is is orderly and law-like and you can understand it. It's not capricious or... So how does that mean that you have a... Superintelligence. Well, Newton actually had an interesting spin on this. He postulated that if he were God and made a world, he would make it with law-like behaviour. He would make it in such a way that it operated in a regular, um, reliable way. And this was indeed what he observed with the world around him. Mm-hmm. So he thought that whatever had brought the universe into being was in some sense a mind like his. So that this idea of there being an intelligence or a mind has what I call explanatory power explanatory scope it's elegant and it makes a minimal number of assumptions Mm -hmm. Uh, any other reasons that you think that there's more than this i think you can constructively look at the course of the actions of the divine in human affairs something like the life of christ and the origins of the christian movement you might look at what's called the numinous which i think is the presence of some greater reality some otherness and, I mean, I've had a handful of those experiences and a lot of people uh, throughout history have written very eloquently about this. Mm. And I think these numinous moments are, are pointers. They are something that point beyond themselves to something more. You're a pretty rational guy, having numinous hopefully, experiences. Uh, hopefully. And, and this is interesting. Like, I go out of my way not to have them because I don't <laughs> like emotional manipulation. Right. Uh, and so I know some people from a kind of charismatic strand might say cultivate an environment where you can sense the presence of something more and i don't object to that but i get a bit queasy when i feel like i'm being manipulated Mm -hmm. that's just my personality but the experience that i've had where i've sensed the presence of something uh, awe-inspiring overwhelming powerful um, these have occurred largely unasked for and unsought for but they often occur in a specific theistic context like i might be dwelling on in, in private prayer or I might be uh, looking at, a, at a, the roof of a cathedral or something like that. Some of these things contextually mm. uh, occur in an interesting way and mm. I find reductionist explanations of them to be not particularly enlightening or helpful. Mm. Mm. Okay. Today's big question is how can I believe that there is more than this? And as we've alluded to before, the Bible also offers a response to this question. Indeed, in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have, Jesus encounters an argument between his disciples and the teachers of the law. A boy has an evil spirit, but Jesus' disciples can't drive it out. Jesus arrives in verse 19 and he's critical of the lack of belief of the people where he says, you unbelieving generation. Mm. So James, why do you think that they lacked belief? I'll lead off by saying that this community, this, this man in the story, didn't have access to all of the 
Wikipedia pages on epistemology of knowledge that, that you and I might have access right, yeah. to. So Which it, is very reliable. It, it, well, <laughs> he, he couldn't trawl through the editor's comments. Yeah. Um, and so he's trying to do the best he can make sense of the world in the best way possible. So who does he go to, to when his son is suffering from these disturbing fits? He's in a bit of a, a spiritual and physical crisis. Yeah. So he goes to the teachers of the law. And what does Jesus find them doing? Arguing, having some debate. Okay. And the writer of Mark often uses examples to show the authority of this Jesus guy compared to the teachers of the law. Mm. If you've got people who are the leaders of the generation who are having these particular debates and criticisms and they seem to be just missing the heart of what God is and, and how he cares for his people, is it any wonder that the generation is, is an unbelieving one? Mm. You know? mm. Um, so Christ steps into this conflict and he brings this moral gravitas mm. that I think actually leaps out from the pages at you. Mm. And then they bring the boy to Jesus and mm. Jesus asks the boy's father how long he's been like this. And the father says, from childhood. Mm. And then the father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So do you think that this man, this boy's father, really believed that Jesus could heal his son? It's hard to know from the text, but it sounds to me that he was desperate he was tired and he'd been dealing with this, these fits and these problems for a long, long time. And as a father, I just resonate with him. I just feel, I feel his exhaustion and anguish. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps he didn't believe, because Jesus, I think, goes on to highlight the fa- father's lack of trust mm. by repeating in the form of a question, if you can, uh, and Jesus then goes on to say, everything is possible for the mm. one who believes. Now, does this mean that if we just believe hard enough, we can do absolutely anything? Yeah, if you just believe hard enough, you can uh, will yourself to be Superman and jump off the end of a building. Um, I don't recommend that, by the way. <laughs> don't right. walk away. That's not a. We do not endorse no, that advice. No. Well, and, and why don't we exhaust? Uh, isn't that it? what the Bible? Isn't what Jesus is saying? If you just believe hard enough, we can do anything. Well, I think he's saying in the context of belief in me. Okay, so Christ is making some fairly audacious claims about his role and that God is, in a sense, incarnate within him, okay? You look at me, you can see what God is like. So if you place your faith in that person, in that object, then that's what is important rather than the fervency of your own belief. Mm. It's the object that's the important thing. Yeah. So what then is, is faith or belief? It depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, and you'll see people put forward ways of describing faith that say it's a kind of leap in the dark or there's the absence of any evidence, right? I think there are better, richer ways of explaining faith than that. And I think uh, I would lean towards the side of it being a step of trust or confidence or commitment to or allegiance to a person or cause that calls for your own investment. Mm. So basically, Jesus is basically asking for people to sort of trust him. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. We often look at that and saying, okay, this is a context of a, a, a request for physical healing. This man is desperate and he's, he, he wants a, a physical healing. But you can exercise faith in a whole lot of other ways, not just, you know, making petitions for, for miraculous intervention. Mm. Well, the man's response, the boy's father, mm. is then very interesting Uh, Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Mm. So are his doubts reasonable? I think in this man, we actually see a glimpse of authenticity. And I think Jesus was very big on authenticity, uh, intellectual honesty, if you want to call it that. And, And this man was being authentic. He didn't believe, but he wants to. He wants to, to, to get that connection, to get that understanding. Mm. So I think 
now that he's got access to Jesus in front of him, that's probably a very good place for him to start. Mm. So then how do you resonate with the statement, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief? Okay, so I might look at things that I'm uncertain about and think, how can I manage this constructively? How can I foster a deeper understanding of the world in a way that doesn't involve me being critical or hostile? Okay, so helping with my unbelief is helping manage uncertainty, but also to seek out the best sort of arguments, the best sort of answers, and to learn to live with the limitations of my knowledge. Now, it's easy for this man to believe in Jesus because he was standing right in front of him. Mm. Is it hard to trust someone or something that you can't see right now? It's different. Um, I don't have the same sort of um, trust in Jesus as his disciples did immediately after their experiences of him post-crucifixion. But I think you can still put your faith in his teachings based on the, the word that we have, words that we have written. You can put your trust in Jesus by living according to his teachings. Mm. And I think that is something that we can definitely do today, even though we're separated by, um, by two millennia from him. Mm. What about those who you said don't actually want to believe? Hmm. That's an interesting one. Uh, I think you need to discern here whether the objection is is a genuine one because you really find the whole view doesn't cohere or doesn't work. I think we need to have some grace and, and charity there. Um, there might be the, the person who might find it unattractive to believe in Christianity because it might make some very hard moral demands. If I wanted to make up a belief in God, I don't think I would choose Christian theism. I'd choose what's called... Um, Oh, it's a metaphysical um, therapeutic deism, <laughs> which... If we can a, understand that, then sure. It's a big, sure. a, a big mouthful to say that, that, <laughs> that, that basically there's something more, but this thing is always loving and kind and yeah. doesn't challenge me to change my behaviour in any way, doesn't make any demands and just kind of is like your buddy that sticks mm. around. I think the view of God is much more serious than that. Mm. So, James, how can I believe that there is more than this? We can have good reasons to think there's something more, that there is a universe with not only a mathematical reality but a moral reality that undergirds it, I think it is a very plausible inference to think that there is a intelligence behind it all and that this intelligence has interacted with the world in some way and that you can in some sense detect its fingerprints. Um, I would say that our destiny is not to live in a world where this is all there is, but to enjoy a world where there is something more. And Jesus gives us a glimpse of more as well? Absolutely. The audacious thing about Jesus is that he is claiming that if you look at him, you truly see what God is like. It's like looking at a painting that you find difficult to interpret. You know the painting's there on the wall in the gallery, but imagine if the artist comes up next to you and helps explain some of the finer features. You're going to learn a lot more about that painting than if you sat back uh, just understanding it from your own point of view. Mm. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, how can I believe that there is more than this? From Mark 9.37, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guests today, James Garth. Thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. If you want to be part of the live audience or subscribe to the podcast, go to biggerquestions.org.